my body, my vehicle. My body is my vehicle. I drive her like a reckless teen. She crashes into others, into sidewalks. She breaks red lights at the last second as the death policeman shakes his head. Sometimes I lose one of my features, a strand of hair or an organ, and I find no spare parts in the junkyard. I lost my silver lips and my grease-coated heart, and I lost my rotating hat, then my left hand, and with it my peripheral vision. Like a Canadian man on Mondays, I start the engine softly and shovel the surrounding snow. I let her warm up and come alive, regain her senses, for no vehicle rises from bed, ready to face the street. In the room, I let her roam. Every time an idea struggles for air, she scratches with her unkempt nails the wooden floors, waiting for language until it unfurls, easing the crisis. What do I do with this vehicle of mine? I cannot park her, desert her anywhere. When I go shopping, my wheels shatter the glossy ceramic floors. And when I go to the beach, she sinks her teeth into the sand. Small and dark and broken, her windows are an almanac of winds and her voice falters at rush hour. Welcome to episode 83 of the Bulak podcast. I'm Ursula Lindsay in Amman, Jordan. I'm joined by Marsha Links-Qualey in Rabat, Morocco. And we have a special guest for this episode who just read uh, a poem that you heard there at the opening. Uh, we're very pleased to have Mona Karim with us, poet, translator, critic, and scholar, uh, reading from a forthcoming uh, collection of selected poems translated by Sarah El Kamel. So thank you so much for joining us, Mona. Thank you for having me. Mona Karim is author of three poetry collections. She's a recipient of the, the, a 2021 NEA Literary Grant and a fellow at the Center for the Humanities at Tufts University. She held fellowships and residencies with Princeton University, Poetry International, Arab American National Museum, Norwich Center, and Forum Transregional Studien. Her most recent publication, Femme Ghosts, is a trilingual chapbook published by Publication Studio in fall 2019. And as you just heard, she also has a forthcoming collection of selected poems. Her work has been translated into nine languages and has appeared in journals around the world. Karim holds a PhD in comparative literature from the State University of New York at Binghamton, and she's taught at Princeton, Tufts, University of Maryland, College Park, SUNY Binghamton, Rutgers, and Bronx Community College. Her translations include Ashraf Fayyad's Instructions Within, which was nominated for a Best Translated Book Award, Ra'ad Abdul Qadr's Except for This Unseen Thread, which was uh, on, on the shortlist for the Saif Gobash Bani Paul Prize and from English into Arabic, Octavia Butler's fantastic, brilliant novel, Kindred. Thank you so much, Mona, for, for agreeing to come on today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to do this with you. And um, you are also a, a writer and essayist and, and critic, and uh, you've written some lovely things um, that we're going to be discussing uh, on, on today's podcast, some essays about translation, a, a gorgeous personal essay that is really one of my favorite pieces of, of writing that I came across on the internet uh, about your personal experience of statelessness and migration uh, called Mapping Exile, um, and also an essay that I really enjoyed uh, about Bidun literature, which is something that I was um, not, I'm not very knowledgeable about. Uh, but perhaps before we get into to those essays, you can tell us a bit more um, about the, the poem that you read and, and about this uh, forthcoming collection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, thank you, Ursula. I, um, you know, sometimes my father says I have too many talents for my own good. Um, <laughs> but I, I like to think that, you know, um, that genres are not um, separable. And, and I always, I feel like, 
um, this poem maybe captures this when I say like that the the idea makes me um, roam around the room and like scratch the earth, you know. So I try to reproduce the same idea in different genres because really I feel like the result is always different. You know, there is a different um, um, articulation, um, a different way of distilling this idea or this this let's say experience really. Um, you know, so, and, and in this repetition, something is generated and I, I, I really enjoyed this process. Um, so this, this poem I wrote, um, um, as you can see, that's like, um, the body as, as a vehicle, you know, uh, I, like, I feel like this is something I reached after my, uh, third poetry collection. It was published in 2016 and, um, all the poems in that, in that collection have like women protagonists, um, mostly in, in solitude. Yeah. Like the, I call them forgotten women, women who are indifferent to the world. You know, I, I was fascinated with, with these kind of women, especially of course, like <laughs> my mom, you know, uh, being one of them, you know, these women who are not, um, relevant to, 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 to the status quo. Right. But like in our inner lives, of course Mm -hmm. they are, you know? Um, so, um, since that like interest about like these female portraits, if we can call them, um, I've moved on more to the body, um, you know, as a site for, 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 um, ideas, for experiences, you know, I think we are all busy with, with the body in general. You know, I, I've, um, I've encountered it even in my translation of Butler, you know, uh, the so-called affect, you know, um, you know, so I'm fascinated with how the body can be a site for so much. Um, and, um, I played on it because, um, you know, if my body was looked at, gazed at as, as a woman back home, you know, in, in the United States, usually it is racialized, you know, uh, you, sometimes it's, it's, a burden, you know, and I say that I cannot abandon it anywhere, you know? So I wrote this poem, um, with, with the hope that, you know, I can depict this, this burden of the body, but in, in a light mode, as you can see, you know, it's like more, um, um, uh, a, a form of light complaint, let's say. Um, and it's one of the poems that, um, uh, Sarah Kamel, uh, picked, uh, for her selection of poetry. Sarah Kamel is an Egyptian poet who writes in English um, and translates between English and Arabic. Um, she is um, truly a wonderful poet, you know, and I, I especially admire um, her, her current project uh, working on, um, let's say, um, memorializing the, the Egyptian revolution through poetry, which I feel like is an intimidating project for our generation. Many of us try not to uh, look back at the revolution or feel like we don't have something to, mm-hmm. to write about the revolution. Yeah. So we cross paths and, um, um, like I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, to have someone like her translate my poetry and she's translating basically from, uh, um, the few collections I published, but also from my new book of poetry, my fourth, um, which I'm still working on, but it's been a beautiful process, like writing poems, sending them to her, you know, discussing these poems. Sometimes, she would translate some of them, you know, so, um, um, this translation project became rather like a literary companionship. Um, and of course, like I'm, I'm seeing myself through her translation, you know, like I have to look back at poems I wrote like 15 years ago. Right. (laughs) And, and feel like, wow, this Mm -hmm. is like such a difference. Right. Like, um, but also it's an opportunity to, to appreciate early work because usually as a writer, you, you cringe at your early work, you know, but when you see it, um, <laughs> when you see it in the third space, like, yeah, there is, um, a moment of discover discovery and uh, maybe appreciation, maybe reflection. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm truly, I'm excited to, to see this book come out, uh, once Sarah gets to complete it. So is she's the one who's selecting which poems to translate? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you can imagine being a translator myself, like I, I, I have been like, yeah, like I believe, I believe in this politics that the translator gets to do so much, you know? Well, it read beautifully. I must also be an interesting experience to, to, I mean, to sort of reread yourself reflected back by another trans, I mean, another translator and in translation 
it has a very, it has a physicality. I really enjoy the sort of like that you feel the wear and tear of motion in, 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 in that, in that poem, like both movement, but the, the, the effort and the, and the damage of it too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, so this fourth collection, uh, can, can you tell us that also is, is poems of the, of sort of, of the body? Um, well, um, I don't know. We still are trying to think of, of like, um, let's say a theme, um, um, like Sarah has picked up on, on the portraits, like there is, um, that I have this approach a lot, you know, of like approaching the poem as a portrait, um, of the self or, or of someone else, you know, so, um, she has maintained this theme. I, I believe that the, uh, my new collection in, in Arabic is, uh, um, um, moves away from the portraits and plays more on, um, let's say textuality, you know, uh, like I, um, I don't know how to, um, really explain this <laughs> unless, unless we have like a poem in front of us. Um, but yeah, um, I, I feel like the fourth collection is, um, has, has, I mean, it still continues on themes of like, um, alienation, exile, you know, especially the female subject, you know, I'm always thinking like, yeah, like, this is this has been written on uh, a lot, but like, uh, where do women come in, into this, right? Like, um, how does, um, yeah, like how does say experiencing sexism in in the states differ? You know, when you are a migrant or exile, or, when, or add to that when you are an, an artist, for example, right? Um, so uh, we don't necessarily have a theme so far, but. I also have been discussing with Sarah, like this idea that, you know, in, in U.S. publishing, um, there is a tendency to, um, uh, like, um, let's say, contain poetry as well and uh, under a concept, like one concept for the whole collection, um, mm. which is mm. not usual in Arabic, actually, you know, and I would say in Arabic, like I've noticed in the past um, five, seven years that this influence has come into Arabic, that, you know, there is a general theme that brings, um, a collection together. Um, but for a long time, you know, this, uh, unity of, a, of the book, uh, or a bookmaking, um, um, was, was not usual in Arabic poetry. So you will see in my new collection, uh, hopefully when it comes, when I finish it, <laughs> um, you will see that, um, like, yeah, a lot of it has, um, has, um, much in common because I'm writing it in, in the same time period. I have certain questions and concerns, you know, that inform the poems, but there are a few that, you know, um, that go out of that line, you know, and I, um, um, I really care to keep that, you know, to keep this, like this continuity, this, non-linear thing, you know, breaking expectation, like, um, as I, as I mentioned also in, in my essay for uh, Arablet is that like, yeah, like to resist being shelved and labeled and, and, and like summarized in, in, in a way. Um, so, uh, we'll see, but mm-hmm. uh, like, as you know, selections, uh, usually have the freedom to be like of, of different, um, themes and modes. Right, if it's a collection of uh, selected works of of a poet's entire oeuvre, yeah. And and now, Mona, you've you've written about uh, translation from Arabic and translation of poetry in particular, um, and uh, there's a there's a wonderful essay of yours that we wanted to talk about a bit that addresses this. Um, it's uh, it's entitled "Western Poets Kidnap Your Poems and Call Them Translations." Um, and you you specifically look at uh, what's called bridge translations, which is something that I actually was um, not not aware was particularly as as a practice. C- could you talk a bit about the the focus of of this article and 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 your arguments here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, um, yeah. I've always encountered this this kind of translation and didn't even know the name for it. You know, uh, bridge translation. Um, and, um, recently I re revisited the, the essay, um, because it will be republished by, um, um, tilted access press. They have an anthology forthcoming on decolonizing translation. Um, I think the title of it right now is, uh, 
and violent phenomenon. Um, and, um, and, and in, in this new version, like I, I considered this title, right? Like of, or this, uh, label of bridge translation. And when you stop at the word bridge, um, you can see already there is like a colonial, <laughs> um, like indication in it already. Like, you know, I, like recently I visited, um, California and I, I took a trip from San Francisco, like driving down to LA and I would see these massive bridges, right? Like connecting land to land and, and you look at it and it's impressive, but you're also like, wow, this is violent. Like this is not supposed to exist, you know, like these, um, like how did they build this? You know, <laughs> um, you know, this, you can see it's invasive in a way. Right. So, um, I, I got to, um, reflect a bit on, on bridges being, being, you know, invasive, being violent, like not belonging. Um, also, I also was reminded of like what, um, Samah Sanim, translator and scholar, you know, says about translation. She's like, I'm not interested in translation as a bridge, you know, as, as communication. Um, um, she's like, I'm, I'm interested in, in how translation like, um, changes, um, knowledge production. Right. So I'm saying this because, um, I chose in my essay not to use the word bridge translation, even though that's what people know it, um, as, um, because that's really like, um, like that's what those early Western, you know, canonical writers called it, you know? Um, and maybe, um, back then, you know, it made sense in a way because they were translating from Latin, from Italian, you know, so usually they were translating, um, within different bodies of Western literature, but the practice has continued even though so much has shifted, right? So like now there's bridge translations usually happening from third world literatures, you know, um, or not even third world, you know, um, I mentioned also Chinese as well, like, which is, you know, I, I, I wonder like, how could you mm. like justify that, you know, when Chinese is like the most spoken language on earth, you know, so we don't have a shortage of, of Chinese translators, for example. Um, so, um, um, like, because the definition of this, the, sorry, I just want to say, because the, 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 the definition of this, I mean, what differentiates it from other translations is, is that, is that the text is, is translated once by a native speaker and then reworked or retranslated by the person, by someone in the, t working in the, tar in the target language, right? Is yes. that more or less the, the definition of what this process is? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty and much. usually it's the, the famous person whose name is on the cover and not the, you know, the, the first translator, uh, yeah. of, mm -hmm. of the work. And when I've, you know, so I also, I thought that this phenomenon had gone away, but then it, it did, sort of see this resurgence, I thought more in the UK than in the US. Um, mm. And with Arabic, particularly of Iraqi poets, um, as some form of, yes, like, I don't, I don't know, like, uh, you know, uh, as a sort of a political act of, of, um, you know, bringing a famous uh, Western poet to, to, to translate, but they're not translating their sort of, you know, adapting or remaking or right. I, I don't know what the, you know, I the process rendition is. In, in the essay, <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know, this mm. is barely rendition. Like don't give yourself too much credit, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. But I want to also point out something that like, usually th this is interesting. You would never see them bringing, uh, this, 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 um, co-translator, right? Like sometimes they don't even call them the co-translator. They call them like bridge right. translator. You know, it's, it's, it keeps getting more ridiculous. Like uh, the more you contemplate the labels, um, but like that person would never be, for example, um, a Western translator of Arabic literature, you know, someone who actually translates directly, you know, they don't hire the, like someone who is, let's say, not even Western, someone who is not from the native language, um, but translates from the native language because um, it's like they want the native speaker for their authenticity, right? To give the blessing to this translation, regardless of whether this native speaker is a translator or not, is good or not, you know, it doesn't matter. It's like, a, I'm just taking from you the authenticity, you know, 
um, and I am going to do the translation work. Um, and, you know, as you can see, there is like this separation of like, what is art? What is labor? Right? Like there is this hierarchy of like, mm. um, you mm. know, as a translator, you don't get to be, um, um, a poet. You don't get to be a writer, you know, like, um, um, yeah, like this, this, this arbitrary separation hierarchy, um, is, is very evident. Um, so I, as you can see in the essay, I didn't limit this to Arabic because I was like, you know, look everywhere. You see, like, it's usually happening to non-Western literatures, like more and more, you know, you don't, um, you know, um, and when it happens within Western literatures, it usually happens with the canon, you know? So as you know, like if you translate the canon, the canon is untouchable, you know, the canon doesn't get hurt, you know, it's like, it it only gets more and more powerful. So when you translate Dante, that's fine. You know, even if you don't speak the original language, like there is no power relations. It, it is your canon as a Western poet, but when you translate third world poets, you know, or let's say non-Western ones, um, the the project holds so much tension. It's it's charged in different ways. And it seems to me that one of the motivations behind this approach m- must be um, because the the sort of final credited poet translator is usually someone well known, and so there's a kind of market imperative, right? Because it allows you to put the the name of somebody famous on the on the book. I mean, presumably that's that's one of the reasons. But then, when those people do not speak the language from which the work originates, uh, and yet they need to be sort of given star billing, you 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 bring in, like you say, someone who is um, does that labor, that original as a sort of labor of 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 translating the of rough, doing a rough translation, doing the like. Mm-hmm. unpolished uh, yeah. work from, from, the, from the native language. <laughs> you know, sometimes they're not necessarily... Right, yeah. I thought, I thought that was yeah. an explanation. <laughs> I was looking for an explanation for this because it's somewhat, it really is somewhat mystifying. It's mystifying as an approach. I mean, uh, you know, like you say, there are qualified people to, to, to do this. So, um, and as you point out in your essay with the examples, like things are really you know, lost and, uh, garbled, um, when it's, when it's done this way. I just, a reversal of how normally it works, right. That, that, um, that the, there, there's the writer, the original say translator, um, and that's the person whose name is known. And then there's the editor, um, which this, you know, maybe this, this, um, the second poet can be said to be. And that person's not, you know, that person isn't known. And as an editor, I don't want to be known. <laughs> I don't need my name anywhere. Yeah. And I, I, I just like, maybe we could also like, um, um, points through the essay is that, you know, um, we can, we can discuss so many examples and, and focus on the dynamics and, and intentions and reasons and so on. But really, the the larger context is that this is all about attitudes towards you know non-western literatures and like hierarchies you know that continue to reproduce themselves because you know i'm i'm not i i also mentioned this in the essay i'm not interested in you know pointing fingers at people or even like defining what is a good translation what is a translation and so on um it's more of like um, yeah, like you really can't ignore, uh, like these power relations as, as you're translating. Um, and, um, I don't know, Marshall, like you, you pointed out that paragraph and I was wondering if you want to read it or I should read it, like just to give people, um, no, I would love, yeah. I would love to read it because I, I, I just really enjoy the words of it. So <laughs> you'll just hear me happy reading it. Yeah. I had thought that the phenomenon of Western poets adapting someone's translation had vanished. I would argue that it did disappear for a few years from English, only to return at the hands of poets, not translators. Translation has become cool. In some way, its popularity speaks of the failure of a liberal intellectual class wrestling with the rise of Western fascisms. It rejuvenates their monolingual diction and imagery. It fits in the tenure dossier. It rescues a third world poet who is always imagined as a singular voice against the savage masses, as if the Cold War has never ended or, God forbid, hasn't been won by the United States. Translation today, as scholar Dima Ayub argues, 
is seen not only as a necessity, but also necessarily good. What makes translations a must? Where does this blind faith in translation come from? Doesn't translation act also as unconditional access, as surveillance, as an expanding force of the global capitalist market of literature? Yeah. Um, and I just think there's so much to, to pick through in just that one paragraph. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it struck me a lot too. I, 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 I was also very taken with this, this observation of, of considering translation as a sort of in and of itself morally virtuous act um, when the point you're making is like everything else, it, you know, it, it exists within, within power relations and, and just the fact that something is translated or that you're translating is not, is not in and of itself virtuous. And, um, and then I think you, you, as you, you also point out, there's something often very condescending towards the original writers and poets in this attitude that, you know, all these liberties can be taken because, uh, as you say, um, they're being championed, celebrated, unearthed, you know, brought into the, the, the English speaking or, or Western world of literature, which is always centered as like the only one that matters. Yeah, and I would like to also like bring the comparison, you know, because I, I grew up reading these these so-called bridge translations. You know, I I, I read uh, Tagore, for example, through the tra uh, like through English translations into Arabic, you know, or like, um, you know, I mentioned Japanese literature. You know, we all like Arabic translation relied heavily on English, French, and then later Russian, you know? So it, it's not strange to me, bridge translations. And I, I, I appreciate it actually, but in the, in the Arabic example, you know, there are like, um, there, there is reasons to that, right? Like the limitations we like, um, um, limitations in the sense that like, yeah, the, people didn't know, um, East Asian languages, for example, or didn't learn them, didn't go study there. Now we have people going and studying there. So now we have people who translate originally from there, you know? So, um, I, I, I'm always fascinated and actually proud of like, uh, Arabic translation history and, and movement. Um, it's much more organic, decolonial, democratic, and so on. Um, and I only realized this after, coming to the States and seeing how colonial and, 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 um, you know, uh, really racist, honestly, like how, how the world of translation functions. Right. So I want to give an example here of like, um, there is an essay called, he knows too much bridge translations, literal translations and long-term harm written by Jen Kaleja and Sophie Collins. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing the names. Um, and it, it was published by Asymptote and it's, it's really good because they like work through like different uh, examples of bridge translation right and like different logics of it and you know uh, all of that but um at, to return to the point i was saying about like how translation is seen as as um labor and um uh, uh sorry like the the bridge translation is seen as labor and then the rendition let's say is seen as art right um and this is something they touch on in in, in this essay but i want to compare to to uh, arabic in arabic translators get paid writers don't get paid you know funny enough right like and um translators <laughs> are <laughs> you know translators are really like respected and regarded in in in, in arabic people people have favorite translators that they continue to buy the whatever they translate even not knowing the 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 author they know the translator they trust the translator you know also um for a long time uh, writers were necessarily translators, you know, like it was part of their, um, uh, experimenting and, um, you know, the ambition of Arabic literature, modern Arabic literature could not be realized without translation. So you see all the big poets in, in modern Arabic poetry were translators, you know, from whichever language. And like, you know, you think of someone like Adonis, for example, he translated from many languages, through French, you know, um, and it was to him always like an experiment, you know, and it was never separable and it was never like translation is degraded or demeaned or considered 
only like uh, labor per page per word, you know, it's like um, they are not separable, you know. So I, I bring this in, you know, in, in whatever panel I'm going to or like whenever I'm asked because I'm like, look, the Arabic literature is the potential you guys need to aspire for, you know, where it is all these forms of literature coexist together and like complete each other, you know, don't, there is no separation of, of different uh, practices. There is no hierarchies uh, uh, between them. So how did you, you start translating? You started as, as a poet, right? And was um, Ashraf Fayyad the first time you, you, you started translating? That was um, the first book. Uh, yeah, definitely. That was like the first collection. Mm. Um, but, you know, um, so I, in college, back in Kuwait, I, I was an English major. Um, so, um, but I was also working at an, a local newspaper and, you know, uh, like again, going back to no separation of labor. Um, I was editing, I was like, uh, reporting, writing reviews, you know, all kinds of things, but also translating whatever poem I come across that I like, you know? Um, um, so, uh, I translated mostly from American poetry just because that was my major, um, like most of what, it, what we studied. Um, so, but yeah, I never thought about like, Oh, let me translate a whole book, you know, or like, uh, a certain poet, you know, like focus on their work. You know, I never had this, um, concern. Um, but then, yeah, with, with Eshraf, um, um, maybe you remember like, you know, like there was, um, honestly, I would say like translators did a great job, you know, in supporting him more than writers, more than, you know, uh, NGOs and so on, you know, in supporting Eshraf Fayyad because, um, people just like agreed like that one way to support this poet is just by making his, his poetry available, you know, across the globe. So he's been translated into, you know, almost 20 languages. Uh, and many of these languages relied on my translation, you know, of course, English being dominant. Um, so uh, it was really, it was really a beautiful effort. It was like, um, you know, I, I feel like one day we're going to have to go back and look at this, you know, of like, this, this, this thing of like, um, um, you know, translation as a political expression in a way, especially that Ishraf, his poetry is very much political being, uh, being about, um, um, you know, a Palestinian displacement and, and, and him being a refugee and also always like, um, talking about petrocapitalism, you know, being someone who grew up in Saudi Arabia, you know, and the c- complicity of that in, 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 in the, displacement and, you know, continued suffering of Palestinians, you know, so, um, it all came in a way, it all became cohesive together, you know, or not, maybe not cohesive, but yeah, like something organic happened between that, the Ashraf's work and all the different translations of his. Yeah. And readings around the world. I, I'm just remembering now, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I haven't, you know, I haven't read, um, poetry in, in a reading since like university, but yeah, uh, on some day it was like a day of poetry for, for Ashraf, right? Um, yes. I went, yeah. I went to a reading and, and read his poems. Yeah. And yeah. I think, uh, yeah. And people around the world must've been doing the same thing at the same time. Yeah, exactly. It was like, yeah. Maybe I think a really, in, <laughs> I, I think a really interesting thing that you, focus on in your in your criticism and and your writing mona are these issues of of the problems with like trying to over classify uh writing and literature and 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 writers and on the one hand um in your essay about bedoum literature you have this critique of this very like static um you know, definitions of national literature uh, that, that exist, you know, in, in countries in the region um, and that where you say literature linked to state identity and to state narratives um, rather than to geography, which is in reality the natural vessel for any creative act. And that, that I, I couldn't agree more. Um, of course, you know, writing is linked to place, but in, 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 in this personal and like organic way and not in this, you know, these sort of delineations that are made around like each country's national literature. And and then, you know, in a, in a different setting and, and focus on something else, but you also sort of look at the way in which, 
um, writers get categorized, um, you know, by the by the Western publishing marketplace, I think, um, and over categorized and over labeled in terms of like identities. And even when they're sort of coming from what's defined as the margins, which is questionable to begin with, and they just get kind of sucked into uh, that label, right. Of like, a, a, a marginalized writer or an immigrant writer or an exile writer and how hard it is to like break out of these, these endless categorizations that, that don't really serve the, the writing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, um, thank you for, for, for this connection because really, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you see, you see it across my work, like and um, you know the self-translation essay, the you know um, the Bedouin literature essay, my my scholarly work as well, you know, because I like that's you know by historical coincidence being being stateless from a small country like Kuwait, you know, that is already you know peripheral in in the Arab world and Arab culture, um, and um, you know like struggling to be like what are you and, and, and why does this matter even, you know? Um, and like, um, you know, and also seeing like firsthand how ridiculous these national literature labels are, you know, like when you, when you say Kuwaiti literature, for example, there is nothing distinct about Kuwaiti literature, you know, literary, you know, in, in the sense, like a certain style or like literary schools, you know, like, um, there, there isn't right. Like, it's like the, the nation was, was founded in the sixties, you know, then, you have to produce like national culture. What is national culture? Oh, music, literature, folklore. I don't know what. And it's in every production, there is exclusion. You know, it's like, um, it's never, you know, um, like organic or heterogeneous or whatever. It's actually, um, uh, very limiting. So, you know, to me, like, I'm like, why would I want to belong to something that it, that already excludes me that, you know, doesn't have anything distinct about it. You know, I belong to Arabic literature, you know, I write in, in Arabic, um, um, you know, then later I write in English, but I write in Arabic people across the Arab world read me and in diaspora, anyone who speaks Arabic read me, you know, this is already revolutionary, you know? So like, why would I ever accept like a much smaller, you know, domain to exist in, you know? Um, and so I, I struggled with this because, you know, saying you're stateless, like, um, it's always, you know, like people don't know what is that. Right. And like, and for a long time, I don't even know how to answer it, you know? And there is also like, yeah, like being, you know, culturally I am, of a, you know, like Iraqi, um, uh, background, you know, as in like tribal, you know, of, um, the Iraqi South, you know, and then, but, you know, you, we've been, um, um, like the, there, there has been migrations in the region, um, you know, so like you exist in Kuwait several generations, you know, and then there is like, as in, in the mapping exile essay, there is deportations. To, so you return to your connection, uh, to, to Iraq, but it more in a, in the form of exile, it's more violent. Right. So how do you, how do you put this, you know, as a writer in, 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 in your bio, let's say, you know, and why does, how, how, how is it relatable, you know, and how is it relatable to the Arabic reader? How is it relatable to the American reader? And not that I care about relatable, but like, I'm like, why does this matter? Yeah, it is in my work. Right. So you will, you will encounter it for sure. Um, and, and, you know, leaving Kuwait, leaving the Arab world and, and coming to the States where there is this false promise, you know, of like, oh, everyone can have hyphenated identities. You can put all your identities in the first line. You know, this is cool. You know, this is like, go ahead for it, you know, identity politics and so on. You start to see like, oh, this is this even, even putting all these identities without anyone objecting is doesn't achieve much either. Right. And, and, and through that, I returned back to, to the Gulf and started to think of the Gulf. I always call it like the new Gulf, the, the other Gulf in the sense, like I've always looked at the Gulf through the citizen, you know, the citizen's gaze is so dominant, you know, and powerful that it's hard to imagine things without it. But when I had this distance and all of these experiences, I started to think actually the Gulf is such a cool place in the sense like people of all nationalities live there of all languages, you know, and it's like such a chaotic place, but also somehow 
it still works, you know, and, um, I grew up like, um, all the people in my school were, were actually not Kuwaitis. They were all like Arab migrants. Um, and then when I became a writer, you know, um, like all my comrades were of different Arab nationalities and we had one thing in common, which is literature, right? Like writing literature, reading literature and so on. And I call this the, the literature of strangers, you know? Um, and maybe it's, it's, it's like, um, um, a variation of like what Deleuze and Guattari think of like minor literature. But my objection is that I don't want to become more minor and minor. You know, I don't want to become like more like, um, um, yeah, like, and, and only be like, uh, like again, like caged in this, in this label of like, oh, you're stateless or, or you are like Arab American or, you know, like, I, I don't want to be this. I want the minor to take us to the, to the international, you know, to reimagining literature, you know, beyond languages, beyond, you know, again, like just geography being the common thing, but like, you know, we can aspire to, to go beyond the national, especially that now, as you can see, the nation state is disintegrating, you know, nothing makes sense in along national mm. lines anymore. Um, so yeah, long, long answer, <laughs> but you know, as you can see, like, yeah, the label, the label question continues to, to, um, steal my sleep, let's say. <laughs> so uh, do you, does it, I mean, so if you imagine a world where you are like uh, labeled in these sort of very small boxes, does that, does that affect how you, how you write, how you envision it, how your relationship with the reader? I, I would say, you know, I stopped uh, getting bothered by it. You know, b b people will always like need to put some, some label, um, and, um, you know, like, for example, you're at an event, someone introduce you like, or whatever. Right. So like, I, I, I feel like there is a limitation. I, I, I like embrace and, and, and realize that I'm just an individual. I cannot control people's perception of me. You know, uh, they want to define me as writer or scholar or translator or, you know, like, um, sometimes I see it, like I see how people get annoyed by my multiple identities and multiple, like, uh, uh, practices. And I always, um, I always know that if I were a man, like this would not bother them, you know, they would be like, Oh, you know, Renaissance <laughs> man, you know, <laughs> you know, but like when you're a woman, they want you to be a specialist. They want you to pick a lane and stick to it, you know? Um, so I stopped by like control, like, and I don't feel, um, it, it affects my writing anymore. Um, I don't feel anxious with it anymore. I, I would like, I would say like, you know, being someone who gone through different experiences and, um, crossed, uh, uh, different borders, you know, um, I, like this allowed me to, to finally like, you know, um, um, uh, reach a good place, honestly, you know, and, and, and like understand that all I can do is put all, all of the, these things that we're discussing here, like into my writing, you know, and like my text is the site mm. of, of this experience and this growth and this, you know, um, 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 I don't know how to call it, but yeah, like the, this, this journey, let's say, right. Like it's, it's a lifetime journey. Like I, I don't think I will ever stop talking about these things or about exile or about like, you know, it's like, um, um, these are lifetime questions, you know? So, um, no, it does not bother me. And, and I just understand like the limitations between, yeah, like my individual power and, and the context I exist in. Yeah, and you talk about the 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 potential for for writing that is not that refuses to be categorized or that incorporates all all you know so so many different elements to 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 expand the imagination as as you put it. And mm -hmm. I I think I think that's true. I mean I I suspect that like this sort of endless concern with with labels also is is it's a it's a market pressure right it's a branding pressure too in like publishing in the in the west right it's uh having to you know like you said pick a lane strengthen your brand like everything has mm -hmm. to be segmented yes. um yeah. and the 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 economics of it are are very heavy on pe on people and the the pressure to sort of like because you know writers have to make a living, and 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 uh, I think that can be 
very difficult. And I'm thinking of also of an essay by Ahmed Naji, who was on the show with us and, and who did this kind of heartbreaking essay that he wrote, this Egyptian writer who now lives uh, in the States, not by choice after having been in prison in Egypt, and, and who talks about the sort of the way in which he's been really suffered from 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 the disconnect with the with the, the the language and the country that he can you know feels cut off from and from this incredible pressure to like label himself as something in the United States now and 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 to I I, th- I think I think it's um yeah it's it's unfortunate and it's and it's great to push back against that and then I think that a lot of the writers that you know, we, we, we love and that have touched us are, are ones that don't fit in into mm-hmm. these easy, uh, categories, mm-hmm. um, that, that and have, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 uh, like, I'm glad actually that you mentioned Nagy's essay because, you know, we, we are both like of the same generation and, you know, pretty much we are friends and like we've been friends before before exile you know so we we like we are uh, whenever we meet or talk on the phone like we're always like <laughs> you know like um um more with humor really like uh um like analyzing literary culture in the US or like the context and the economy of it and so on um uh, but you can see even like in, in the essay that you mentioned of Nagy, you can see like the echo of my essays in, in his, like, for example, you know, I talk about like the fal- yeah. false promise of Arab American, um, in, in, in my Badun essay or strangers of literature. Um, I, I, you know, talk about that. He talks about the Brown, uh, uh, Brown writer category, or in my mapping exile essay, I talk about like how, um, um I say like migration is a rupture, in time, language, place, and memory. And he says, uh, migration is an ax, you know, or he says exile is an ax, you know? So you can see like the, like that echo. Um, and you know, like we have these shared like concerns and, 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 and questions. And sometimes I look around and, and I see that like many of us are really like, let's say struggle, like, um, to, to, to write about this because we're like, who will read this and who cares? Like, and who, um, 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 like, um, we do. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, but like, I, I think about this, even when I read Sargon Bolas, you know, like, um, one time Nagy hosted me, uh, for a podcast and I, I talked to him a lot about like, the way, like I made sense of being in the U S while being an Arab writer was only by going back and doing research about um, uh, Arab writers who came before me. Um, so I, like Etiel Adnan, Sargon Bolas, Gibran Gibran, so many really. Um, and they made different decisions. Some of them uh, uh, switched to English. Some of them wrote bilingual. Some of them, like Sargon, he kept writing Arabic, but he translated in both directions. Um, you know, so like you see all these different decisions mm. and you see like that, still, you know, they were wonderful writers, whatever their decisions were. Um, but also you see like the struggles and you see that like, um, some, some had privileges, you know, some, um, um, some didn't, you know, and like some, someone like Sargon, he was much more appreciated after his death, which really breaks my heart, you know, but like, um, you know, so like all of these, um, when I saw all of this, I was like, Oh, and, and Sargon, he describes it. He's like the madness of writing about America in Arabic, you know, like the, he calls it a madness. And this weird stuff, <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause like, I'm like, yeah, it is a madness, right? Like to, um, and, and I can't like, I can't contain this madness. I can't resist it. I can't like suppress it, you know? So like I touch it sometimes. I like, I, I interact with it sometimes. Um, and, um, and, but like, it, it gave me so much comfort, honestly, when I read those writers, it gave me comfort because I'm like, you know, I'm not crazy. Like they, they did it like, you know, th- this is okay, you know, to, to exist in between to actually to exist in two places, which is, you know, a powerful way of looking at it in, in a, in a different, um, um, yeah, from a different angle, let's say. Mm. So, but what are the things about, uh, Nagy's essay 
is that he talks so much about fear. And, and I've heard other writers also talk about the kinds of censorship that they either put themselves through or they, the publishing industry puts themselves through in the United States that they were surprised by. But I, I, I don't actually remember instances of you talking about mm. fear in this way. Yeah. And and I do find some of your writing, you know, uh, kind of fearless, like in mm-hmm. in in the structures that it challenges. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how does that happen? <laughs> right. Um, I think you know. I think maybe like I don't know. I don't want to um, simplify this, but as you know, like I I have been here um, longer, so like of course we're gonna we're going to have different conclusions, but also we exist in different contexts, you know, like, um, I, the spaces I existed in, in the U S are like literary academic, you know, I worked as a book bookseller. I worked as a, you know, in a coffee shop, like I, I have been, uh, a, like an SIV, you know, so like, um, all of these things. And as you can see in mapping exile, I was really interested in using legal, uh, labels as entry points, you know, to, to my story, you know, because like, um, yeah, stateless, refugee, asylee, migrants, like, and when do we move between this and that? Like, when does one end? And is it like when the immigration services decide or like who decides exactly? So, um, but I want to say when it comes to fear, like I very much recognize this fear um, and, and censorship. And I actually like, this has come up in, in com- like personal conversations with Nagy is that we come from context where, you know, like, of course, like people understand, you know, and realize and acknowledge that we are, there is a repression and there is like, um, you know, if you, if you speak up, you know, you will go to jail, you will get penalized and so on. Um, in the U S like, no, you can say whatever you want. You will not be sent to jail, but institutions will not like you and will exclude you, you know, and you will be an inconvenience. So it's a very different kind of um, censorship, right? Um, add to that, this idea of like, you know, uh, selling yourself, right? If you don't sell yourself to this, this, um, like what, what happens to your writing, right? Like, will it have space to exist in? Um, I feel like, you know, I struggle, like there were moments, you know, um, um, like, you know, like there were moments I would say like that I would, I felt very angry, you know, to be in, in the U S literary context, because I was like, wow, there is like, just so much, um, um, like privilege plays some, uh, a big role. Like, you know, there is all these like hierarchies and transactions and so on. And then, you know, I worked through it because I understood like, well, the publishing industry in the U S is really capitalist. You know, this is the condition of capitalism mm-hmm. wherever you go really. And in, 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 in the air world, as you know, like, even though now it's publishing is becoming more and more like, let's say commercial, there is more, cultural capital coming into it and so on. It's still very much like people read and write literature because they love it, you know, and like, um, writers don't, Mm -hmm. are not just like full-time writers, you know, you're, (laughs) you have a job and then you're a writer, you know? So, so this really changes the, the, the face of literature, right? Like this is, this changes everything, money corrupts, power corrupts, you know, we, we come from very different contexts. That's why it's so shocking to us to come to a context where transactions you know, play such a big role. Um, and also we come from a generation that it was mm. like, like all we needed to do is be rebels, you know, like be like, Oh, like, um, kill the, the father figures, you know, we don't like anything. We mock everything, you know, it's like, um, and here we are like now we're not in our twenties, we're in our thirties and we are in exile. And like, um, we have distance from the U S but distance from, from home. Right. Like, so, so there is just so much like, to deal with and it's overwhelming and I really believe like there is never an, an, an answer. Um, and I also believe like I have to pick up my battles. Like when, um, when I wrote this essay, like some people like this essay, uh, meaning, uh, Western poets, uh, kidnap, um, um, our poetry and call it, uh, translation. Um, I had friends who were like, Whoa, like this is, you know, you're really like, you know, go in there and you're like, <laughs> but to me, like if I had written this in Arabic, like nobody would think this is controversial. Nobody would think this is mm. like, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I, I noticed like, if you, if you research this a bit, you know, people have been talking about like in, in let's say anglophone scenes have been talking about like, where did negative reviews go? 
Like, wh- why did we lose them? How did this right, happen? Yeah. So like, you can tell like, yeah, like, um, um, mm. the, because I am a stranger, you know, like, and I come from a different context, I have a courage that maybe someone from the scene wouldn't, you know, I have, um, you know, because like that distance allows me to, to be like, you know what, like, I'm going to write this essay and, you know, like, I don't care about transactions. Um, not to say that I am like a saint or anything, but I'm just saying like, um, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) my, my position, you know, sometimes like allows me things just as it denies me things is, is what I'm trying to say. Mm, Right. Exactly. And I would say, although, although like you said, you don't express, like Marcia said, fear, but in your essay about self-translation, you do express a, a lot of um, ambivalence and, and a certain sadness, I think, maybe that's the wrong word, but that's how it read to me about self-translating or a sense of loss as well as gain, I guess, like, like you just said, and, and you, you say, um, I realize that self-translation besides being an aesthetic and a mode of thinking is also a defense mechanism, a survival tactic for the objects of empire, hoping to become subjects. It's inherently complicit, spontaneous, but not natural and never really fulfilling. And again, that struck me. I mean, that is such a sort of fraught. Uh, again, we think of translation, I think, always as a gain, perhaps. Mm, mm, yes. And that's been more, for example, my personal experience, because I think it has not involved so much of us. For me, it was always kind of a an opening, something more, something extra. I learned another language and then, I, you know, uh, having access to to other languages. I mean, not that I write in them or translate professionally, but it was always just sort of a a, a net positive. And I think this is a this is a a, a a different view, right? Where where there's there's actually you know a real tug and pull in different directions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um yeah, thank you for for like framing it in that way. The gain and loss, really, <laughs> you know, because um, I always, honestly, I always see this in, in 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 personal conversations. You know, sometimes saying this to an American writer and them not really recognizing like how vulnerable and 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 painful it is to to say this, which is that I will never get over the fact that I that I um that I lost Arabic, you know, and I didn't lose it. I still insist on writing and publishing in Arabic and so on, but still I lost it in the sense that my everyday life is not Arabic. Like my, my, my dreams, you know, my, uh, intimacy, you know, like, um, and, um, all of this is very necessary for the writer, you know, like the world that, that, you know, that exists around, um, um, a writer. So I exist in a world, like a world of translation, you know, every, every day is just, I'm existing in a mode of translation, you know, or really self-translation, right? Um, So I feel self-translation is useful for me to process my experience, my world, you know, and like the difficulties and challenges of that. But also I appreciate that sometimes it gets, you know, um, experimental. There is a poetics of foreignness that I've captured, you know, that maybe sometimes it can be, toward humor or, or, or irony or sarcasm, you know, and sometimes, um, you know, I feel like I can reverse it to alienate the, the Anglophone rather than, you know, me being alienated, you know, so it can be playful, Mm. um, but this is occasional, Mm. you know, this is, this is not like, it's, it's not always playful. Like I always, you know, like, um, like sit back and feel like, Oh, it, this is painful, you know, and, and I feel it so much, you know, when I, when I write in Arabic, I'm like, you know, um, like the ease and like the, the second nature. And like, I, I even, I feel like because I exist so much in English that whenever I write in Arabic, I feel like, wow, I love this language. And I, and I, I, I just like feel privileged, you know, to, to, um, you know, to like know it so well, you know, and like have this, this like fluency in it, but like also, um, this craft level with it, you know, and like 
um, like nothing is questionable. But then, you know, in, in, in writing in English or in self-translation, um, like you feel like you're writing as if you are an editor as well, right? Like you're always like, you know, really laboring, you know? Um, and even when you go back and read, like, let's say about someone like Nabokov, you know, he, he explains his process in writing in English, like really as a labor, you know, like meticulously sentence by sentence. So there is a power to that, right? Like there is a power to like, you know, this slowness and this, this intention, but then you write in Arabic and you're like, Oh, look at the ease and freedom. And like, you know, like, um, it's my own garden in a way. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, I, I guess like what I arrived to is that like these two always come uh, like to inform each other, to like oppose each other, you know, like to, yeah. Like, and, 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 um, um, they are always moving and, and of course, like I'm moving with them as well. Hmm. That's fantastic. So hmm. if you could maybe take us out on, on a self-translation, if you could read hmm. a poem of yours in, in both languages. Okay. So, um, maybe, maybe this is, um, um, I don't know, maybe this is not the best example here, but I wrote this poem it was like one of the early poems I wrote, or maybe the first poem I wrote in, in, when I came to the States, like I couldn't write poems for a couple of years. And then I wrote this poem called El Motu Ketem Thal. Um, and um, this poem is like, I even I mentioned this in Mapping Exile, like how I always look back at the past and like it's, it's difficult for me to process. And I always think of it in bullet points, you know, um, and only now having spent a decade that I'm able to be like, no, like, I'm not going to deal with my memory as bullet points. I'm going to do it as poems, as prose, as everything, you know, like I, I'll, I'll let it, you know, um, um, lay down, I guess, and expand and flourish in that way. Um, so that poem I wrote is in Arabic and it's very short, but then I translated it into English and then I decided, okay, I will, um, take each part, each stanza and turn it into its own poem because I don't want to do this bullet point, um, um, you know, approach. Right. So, um, so if I, um, I'm going to just read the English if that's okay. Um, yes. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So in, in the middle of the poem, there is this part where I say, um, or perhaps like I should read <laughs> the first page and then go to the, to the second part. Dying like a statue. At 23, you arrive with your sad family, thinking you're a girl who goes to airports but never travels. You sit in a plane surrounded by black soldiers, sleeping and dreaming of Iraqis they had to kill. In 16 hours, you lost your country for the second time, a country no one can love. The university pays you less than minimum wage to teach their kids about women in arranged marriages and men who haven't yet discovered their homosexuality. You go to class as if going to a visa interview. You left a life you know is dying like a statue. In the middle, there is a life that does not leave Skype. These are houses fit for rats, boxes, and us. You know that your heart beats alone, that you cannot remain angry for too long because you're too busy, that everything changes if we wait endlessly, that no promises can be saved after crossing the ocean. So I took that part where it says the university pays you and made it into a poem. So I'll, I'll just read that one. The university pays you less than minimum wage to teach their kids about women in arranged marriages and men who haven't yet discovered their homosexuality. You go to class as of going to a visa interview. Behind the bulletproof glass, the visa officer smiles down at me like a drone. She is happy with my bare head, with my good English, with my assurances that I do not intend to remain in the United States. Who are we kidding? Literature, she repeats after me. What is there to write about the desert? I sweat, staring at her little camera, offering my fingers, DNA, face, and eyes, a generous gift to the National Archive. 
I once told an American poet that we had no prison in the desert. Wow, I cannot imagine that. A place without any prisons. Rarely does the desert make an appearance in Arabic fiction. It is too much work, too much space. Novels can barely contain a building or an alley. Teaching Madak Ali, I failed to make them realize how free a whore is. Even in her escapes, her world building, name changing, switching lovers and languages. But professor, how can Hamida be free? How can an Arab woman not be a victim? Standing before them, I, made, I am made a witness to testify three times a week. But professor, are, they, are there gays in the Middle East? I teach them stone of laughter. I fail to have them recognize an Arab man for a homosexual. But professor, there's no sex scene to prove it. They are amazed at the party scene in Beirut, where genders sit together and pour whiskey. Oh, professor, how revolutionary that they're sitting together. Is that allowed? Though, at the end, I win. I do. I show them Selma Hayek playing Hamida, and it all finally clicks. Oh, it's a woman. Just a woman. It's both beautiful and a she. I'm so happy you read. I'm so happy that you picked that poem. This was one of the ones that I loved. And then I'm so happy to hear that extension of that poem. That's lovely. Thank you. It's um, So it's a sequence of poems, like maybe five or six of them. And it's coming out um, in the new issue of Poetry London. So um, I want to shout out Andre, Andre Nafis Sally uh, for picking this poem. I'm really excited to see it out in English. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mona. This has been really delightful and we will be linking to all of the writing that we've talked about on the episode in our show notes. Thank you, Ursula. And yes. Marcia thank you so much, me. Mona. Yeah. Thank you. This has been really fun. <laughs> um, yeah. And, um, um, like I hope, uh, um, to to get back with you uh, again when 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 Sarah's translation come out or perhaps she can uh, get on with you um, when when the collection comes out but yeah um, so much um, to yeah think. that'll be fun right yeah <laughs> um, yeah thank you again yeah. and, uh, have a wonderful night you too.